Hello and welcome to another episode of Computationally Yours. I'm Dr. Sabak Kadri and I am Arshi Arora. You are listening to Computationally Yours. It is our mission here to make science and advanced topics in computational biology and beyond more accessible. Today's episode is dedicated to the defining moment in the history of genomics, the Human Genome Project. The project that led to the decoding of the book of life for human beings, uh, the decoding of our DNA. This project completely changed the course of medicine and big data in genomics. And today we're going to discuss where and why it started and what happened next. Please know that this is a very complex story over more than a decade, so we're going to focus on the main details here. But before moving ahead, let's do a super quick 101 on DNA for our listeners. Arshi? Absolutely, Sabah. Let's think of it this way. Uh, if all humans were a book and we need to start reading that book, then we should know the alphabets in the book. And DNA is that alphabet. First things first. So what is a DNA molecule? And when I say the word DNA, what happens? We all start imagining the double helix structure. But this is not how DNA looks in the cell. This is the view at a very microscopic level. So let's zoom out and start with the cell. Almost all the DNA is housed in the nucleus of the cell. But a small fraction is also available in the mitochondria, which is the powerhouse of the cell. And it is also called the mitochondrial DNA. Now, inside the nucleus, DNA molecules are wrapped around a protein called histone. And think of this as a beaded necklace where all the beads are the histone proteins. And along with the DNA, they form the chromatin. Now, during cell division, the chromatin starts organizing into chromosomes. And as we know, in humans, there are 23 pairs of chromosomes, one from each parent. These chromosomes are made up of DNA molecules, and the word DNA actually stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. This is a very complex molecule which consists of nitrogen-based molecules. They are called nucleotides. There are mostly four different types of nucleotides, adenine, which is often abbreviated as A, thymine as T, guanine as G, and cytosine as C. All living organisms have DNA. That includes plants and animals. And if you want to know their genetic blueprint, we would always start with getting this DNA information. That's right. And for human beings, the size of our DNA book of life is approximately 3.4 billion letters, or as they're called, nucleotides or bases. But think about this. The mouse, which is what, approximately 10 centimeters in size? Almost the same genome size of 3.5 billion nucleotides. But Arshi, do you know which animal has the most variable genome size? Uh, you mean like the sizes are different from different organisms? Yes, yes, they are. So it's not that everyone has 3.5 billion nucleotides. All organisms can have different sizes of their genome. So tell me, which animal do you think has the most variable genome size? Ugh, well, there are so many organisms out there. I don't think I can even make an educated guess. Why don't you tell us? 
Uh, it is the fish, actually. Uh, this this was very cool. I didn't know about it before this. Uh, the green puffer fish genome actually contains only about 0.34 billion nucleotides, whereas on the other end of the spectrum, there is the marbled lungfish, and its genome is gigantic. It's almost 130 billion nucleotides, which is Think of it as like more than 40 times our genome size. Anyway, I, I'm putting a lot of numbers out there. We'll leave some links of this info on our website as well. But I just thought that was very cool that uh, of all the animals, fish is the one that has that much variability. Yeah, I agree. I wouldn't have thought about it. But now coming back to the chromosomes again. So have you ever wondered what is the shape of the chromosome? The chromosomes appear as X-shaped structure in the cell, but that's not true for all organisms. Uh, For some cellular organisms, chromosomes can actually be circular. And when they started doing the human genome, the aim was actually to get these nucleotides, 3.4 billion nucleotides to be precise, as Saba said, across these 23 chromosomes. And out of this, chromosome 1 is the longest. It is really important to note that chromosomes are numbered from 1 to 22, but it doesn't mean that they are numbered in our cells like that. The numbers are actually based on many factors. Chromosome 1 is named as 1 because it is the longest. Another fun fact is that the number of chromosomes is actually not indicative of complexity of the organism, just like their genome sizes. For example, we know that humans have 23 pairs, but dogs, they have 39 pairs. And now's the right time to start segueing into how we actually decode this genome sequence. We here at Computationally Yours love going back in time and looking at how things started or what the story is behind things. So let's start at the very beginning. How did we actually go from having the ability to just be able to sequence small sections of the DNA to an entire genome? So in 1973, Gilbert and Maxim reported 24 bases of a DNA site. This process took them two years. Today, we are able to sequence 45 human genomes in a single day on one sequencing machine. So think about that for a second. 24 bases in two years and 45 genomes in one day. We've really come a long way. At a later time, of course, we'll go into the evolution of sequencing. But for now, for the Human Genome Project, you just need to know a couple of things here. Proteins were sequenced first in about 1950s. We discussed this a little bit in our first episode as well. RNA came next in 1960s. But really the turning point for DNA came in 1977 with the dawn of Sanger sequencing. An improved version of Sanger sequencing is still used in labs even today. So if you really think about it, at the time when the Human Genome Project started in the late 1980s, DNA sequencing was actually just less than a decade old. Sequencing was being done by using radioactive slab gels, which were being held up against film, and then those films were being read to figure out the sequences. So you can imagine this was a really manual process. In those days, a PhD student's entire thesis would be just about sequencing about a thousand base pairs of the genome. So by 1987, automated Sanger sequencing machines came about, which really increased the amount of sequencing that could be done to about 1,000 bases in a day. So at the beginning of the Human Genome Project around that time, the methodology that was used, which was called shotgun sequencing, this particular uh, sequencing included fragmenting the human DNA into these large overlapping fragments, Those fragments were then cloned into these bacterial uh, 
artificial chromosomes. They were called backs. And then the DNA from each of these backs was further processed and then underwent automated Sanger sequencing. So the final step in this process was taking these overlapping fragments and then trying to assemble together. And this was the process that was completely instrumental in the human genome project. Oh, wow, Sabah, this was really interesting sequencing snapshot that you gave us about what was going on in 1950s to 1980s out there. So now let's move to the Human Genome Project itself. Why and how did we start this Herculean task? All this information is actually available on the website of National Human Genome Research Institute as well. This actually started in 1988 uh, when National Institute of Health Director James Wingarden assembled scientists, policy experts to lay out a plan for the Human Genome Project. Following the same year, in October 1st, the Office for Human Genome Research was created. And then finally, a memorandum of understanding was signed between NIH and the Department of Energy to coordinate research and technical activities finally related to the human genome. But looks like the idea of sequencing human genome already started to come up as proposals in many of these scientific conferences. And more specifically, in May of 1985, there's this perspective piece by Robert Del Becco where he mentions how the sequencing of human genome is one of the ways to shed light on oncogenes. Uh, oncogenes are genes that cause cancer. So the whole scientific community was really waiting for this human genome project as a milestone to uncover so many untold things. There were a lot of opinion pieces in that era where people were talking about the need for it. The scientific community really understood the importance of having this genome sequence. Human Genome Project was spread as a five-year plan and there were multiple publications released covering discoveries from 1988 to 93, and then 93 to 98. And then there was a final leg from 1998 to 2003, which saw a major revamping of Human Genome Project. So sequencing of the human genome was the overarching goal of Human Genome Project. But in the process, there were so many sub-goals, which were important milestones in itself. Uh, in 1988, they were obviously aware that achievement of such a goal would require significant technological advancements in mapping, sequencing, informatics, and gene identifications. Before they started this huge process of sequencing human genome, they actually wanted to sequence model organisms. And some of them that is sequenced during this process were C. elegans, S. Cravisae, E. coli, Drosophila melangoster, and even the mouse genome as it was believed that this will act as a good knowledge base. Many sub-goals were devised to plan and elucidate the human genome sequence variants, or the SNPs. As we all know, a lot of genetic data was being collected, and so we need to put into place uh, appropriate ethical policies when we were collecting this data. And this actually formed the ELSI group, or the Ethical, Legal, and Social Implication Group, Another thing I would like to point out is that Human Genome Project was an international collaboration which formed the International Human Genome Sequencing Consortium and it was an open collaboration involving 20 centers in almost six countries. Yes, Ashri. I think the countries were USA, UK, France, Germany, Japan and also China that joined a little bit later. But the USA itself spent more than $3 billion to sequence the human genome. 
so what were they doing is that as the genome were getting sequenced uh, bit by bit, so the pairs of finished sequence were deposited with the gen bank. And by 1998, just five years shy of the 2003 goal, only 6% of the human genome sequence was completed, actually. So MIT was a big part of the Human Genome Project under the leadership of Dr. Eric Lander. For those of you who might not know, Dr. Eric Lander is a pioneer in genomics and one of the leaders of the Human Genome Project. What is very interesting is that MIT actually contributed about one third of the genome sequence. When I worked at the Broad Institute around 2012 to 14. In that time, I had the honor of hearing some Human Genome Project stories from Dr. Lander, and I wanted to share a page of that history with you. So in the beginning, labs were using extremely manual methods, like I mentioned before, with manually picking up these bacterial colonies and sequencing them. But then production really started picking up towards the end of the decade with automated robots being used at the Whitehead Institute at MIT. But Like Arshi mentioned, in 1998, only about 6% of the genome sequence was complete. In 99, that increased to about 10%. But then, one year later, in May of 2000, there was a draft with 90% of the human genome. How did we go from 10% in 99 to 90% in 2000? The initial part of the Human Genome Project was more in its pilot phase, and it did start scaling up towards the latter half of the decade. But one of the catalysts in this process also came about in 98 with Craig Venter, who formed his private company called Celera Genomics, which you might have heard of. He thought the public project was taking way too long and it was costing too much. So he was going to sequence everything in three years by 2001. The only major difference uh, was that he was going to make the results available to only paying customers, whereas the Human Genome Project decided that all its information would become freely available to everyone within 24 hours. So it was kind of a challenge of the public and the private, the academic and the company. And soon after, actually, the Human Genome Project also started accelerating its pace a lot, along with these advancements in automation and the competition with Celera, all these 20 centers really amping up their production. This is how ultimately in 2000, we had a 90% draft of the human genome and both Celera as well as Human Genome Project got there together. The Human Genome Project published in Nature, Veracellera in Science, and the final reference, which was about 99.3% of the genome, that came about in 2004. And here's a fun fact for you. They published it in 2004, but actually the sequence itself finished on April 25th, 2003. This was actually a deadline that the members of the Human Genome Project set for themselves, and they met it because it marked the 50-year anniversary date to the exact day of the landmark Watson Creek paper on the DNA double helix. Oh, wow. Who would have thought 50 years later we would actually know what uh, is constituting our own DNA double helix? So true, Arshi. So true, right? Science just changes so quickly and and we, we can never anticipate where we are going sometimes. Yep. So now let me tell you a little bit about the 2004 paper that was published about the Human Genome Project. 
so the human sequence that was reported in that 2004 paper consisted of 2 billion 851 million 330,913 nucleotides. <laughs> oh, listeners, yeah. I have to tell you, I I wasn't sure about this, but Arshi insisted she wants to say the exact number of the bases that were published. <laughs> yes, because that is the actual gravity of the situation we are in. That's uh, true. That's true. Yeah. So, uh, 2.8 billion nucleotides were sequenced, and series of paper were also written describing the individual chromosomes as they were getting sequenced. Various biological annotations also came about. These include the GC content, repeat content, segmental duplications, protein coding genes, sequence similarity, and so much more. Uh, this actually led into the functional genomics and comparative genomics. and that field and leading to many more publications and as of may 2004 the human genome build was at 35 due to gap so the build version was build version 35 and there were about 341 gaps at that time and that is mostly because of some technical hurdles and there were some genomic regions that contained repeats actually there were some regions that were not even in the genome that were not even targeted by the human genome project uh, this covers about 99% of the genome and it is accurate to an error rate of approximately one event per 100000 bases And now since then we've had so many additional versions of the human genome new and improved with fewer gaps we are currently in build 38 called AG38 which was released in December of 2013 and with all the advancements in sequencing the latest version still has some gaps it's still not 100% perfect i have to mention that the success of the human genome project critically dependent on uh, bioinformatics and computational biology advancements and these advancements uh, spread over advancements in databases and development of analytical tools for data generation capture and annotation Yes, exactly. And at this point, I actually want to mention Dr. David Hausler, who is an amazing pioneer. He is known for his role in the Human Genome Project as putting together a team which comprised of Jim Kent, who assembled the very first draft of the Human Genome Sequence, the 90% draft in 2000. He also developed the UCSC Genome Browser which is known to every genomics person as the key resource to genome and gene annotation data. Dr. Hausler had previously done a lot of great work using machine learning models called hidden marker models to look at genes in DNA sequence. So in 1999 Dr. Eric Lander called him up and asked him to start working on uh, looking for gene sequences in the DNA draft. But when they joined the Human Genome Project, Jim Kent, Dr. Hausler and and the rest of the team, they realized that the sequence was in bits and pieces and they actually needed more assembled data they needed at least 50000 bases to look for genes so jim kent who had a background in computer gaming took it upon himself to put the code for the assembly together and that is one of the key reasons that the human genome project tied up with celera in 2000 and was able to release that 90% draft it would not have happened without jim kent and david hausler Wow, uh that is some serious coding. So, you know, our genome is still not perfect, right? But look at how far we have come. 
And all genomic bioinformatics are based on aligning to the human genome. So now with that foundation laid up, we can do so much more analysis. Exactly. And Ashi, like you mentioned, the fields of comparative and functional genomics and many other fields actually have come about because of this landmark project. Also, this project has had a huge economic impact as well. I mean, they spent more than $3 billion, but look at how many drugs have come into the market uh, from research using the genome sequence. I read somewhere that the return on investment is actually $140 for every $1 that was spent on this project. Listeners, that's all the time we have. And today I'm going to ask Saba about one take home message that she would like to share with us. Yes, Arshi, I'm actually going to borrow this message from uh, Dr. Eric Lander from one of his speeches. If people listening can take away one thing today, let it be that where we begin in science and where things eventually go, sometimes they can be beyond our imagination. And really, that is what we've learned from the human genome story. Thank you, listeners, for listening to us. Please make sure you subscribe to us. We release weekly episodes on Tuesdays of every week. Please follow us on Twitter at ComBioPodcast. And until next time, this is Computationally Yours. Computationally Yours.